Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. Well, it's hard to miss the outpouring of features marking the 50th anniversary of the June 17th 1972 break-in at the Watergate complex. Roughly two years later, of course, it would culminate in President Richard Nixon's resignation and the conviction of a score of others for obstruction of justice and other crimes. Imagine the coverage when that anniversary rolls around. I'll be back later in the show with Jefferson Morley, author of a new book on a lesser understood aspect of the scandal involving the CIA. But first, Gene. Rumors abound about the physical and mental health of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The puffy face, possible tremors, the isolation, not to mention his grave miscalculations in invading Ukraine. I asked Les Pyanson for his opinion. He spent half of his 30-year CIA career as head of the medical and psychological group analyzing terrorists, narco-traffickers, and world leaders. He's changed. Yes, he's gained weight. Most people, as they get older, do. But his face, to me, in looking at over, definitely looks puffier, mostly in, over the last year, especially. And that, you can say gradually, yes, but when it's in that short of a period of time, it makes you wonder. And then you look at other videos of him over time, his gait, especially. He's always had a gate that was a little bit of a swagger. But recently, I noticed, for example, in most one of the most recent uh, videos I saw, his right arm doesn't move. Normally, when you walk, you swing your arms. And when he walked, he didn't swing his right arm. And, and his left shoulder was lower than his right shoulder. Now, is that from a judo injury, back injury that I'm sure he's sustained over the years? Or is there something else going on? I don't know, but it makes you suspicious. And then we get the Victory Day Parade. Very interesting. They put a blanket over his legs. Oh, he was cold. I'm not so sure he was cold. It was 70 something degrees that day. But if you compare that and then look at the video of him grasping the table when he was interviewing the UN uh, Secretary General and just squeezing that table and kind of, it looks like he was holding on for dear life. Why? Because it was reported that he had a tremor in his hands and his legs. And I think at one very quick look at a video that I saw, his left hand, it was on the other side of where he, you could see, because the picture was from his right side, looked like he had a tremor and he quickly put his hand down and onto his lap. And I think the blanket at the Victory Day Parade may well have been 
not to keep him warm, but because he had a tremor in his legs that people did not, he did not want people to see. So what's your diagnosis looking at all of that? I, there are a lot of possibilities and it's not definitive at all. It could be that he has maybe Parkinson's disease. That would account for the tremor. Uh, if he has some other problem going on for which he is taking steroids, that would account for the puffiness in his face. What could that be? Well, you know, steroids are used for, to treat certain types of cancer. I don't know whether he has that or not. Certainly men at age 69, they're going to have a prostate problem at some point. Does he have prostate cancer? I don't know. It's no evidence for that. But you look at what happens to people, especially men, as they get older, and illnesses arise in men. Prostate problems are very common. So that could be what's going on. Uh, and if he has prostate cancer, they might give him a steroid for that. Thyroid problems that would cause a, a puffy face if his, he has an underactive thyroid. You know, that. That could account for something, too. There's a lot of possibilities. Some people have suggested perhaps he's suffering from early stage dementia. Do you see signs of that? I don't think so. I do think as he's getting older, he's thinking more and more about his legacy. He is reflecting more and more about the important things in his life. And then I can digress a bit. A person's character and personality are formed during childhood. No question about that. Early childhood experiences are critical to something like this. What was his early childhood like? Well, he had two brothers, one who died in infancy in the 30s. Another died of starvation and diphtheria in 1942, I believe. Uh, his mother suffered during World War II starvation, the privations of living in uh, Stalingrad, now St. Petersburg. His father was in the military and was wounded terribly. He lost a lot of members of his family during World War II. And then he's born in 1952, post-war Russia. And he's hearing all of this from his mother. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, it is, he understands the deprivations there. But he's always been that person, presumably. Are you seeing, as a psychologist, because that's part of your training, are you seeing changes in his personality? I think what's happening as he gets older is that a lot of these feelings are coming out in a sense, maybe unconscious. He said this, he's getting older. He's nearing the end of his productive years, in a sense. He wants to leave a legacy. And at a certain level, he wants to get back at the people that destroyed his family, that he suffered and his parents suffered and other relatives suffered. And then on top of that, the Soviet Union has collapsed and he wants to restore the glory of the former Soviet Union. There are a lot of things he wants to repair in his mind. Uh, and now this is my opinion. I, could it also indicate impaired decision-making, particularly given how bad Ukraine is well, going? Some people have said, uh, reported that his people are giving, not giving him the truth. They're giving him information that they think he wants to hear. So 
So that's their psychology, but he's a former KGB operative. He knows the importance of really good intelligence. He knows the importance of getting diversity of input. The fact that he's making these decisions, could it indicate that he's declining mentally? I'm, I'm not sure. I think he's acting on the information that they are giving him. And I think because there are KGB people giving it to him, he trusts them. He surrounds himself with people that he can trust in his own mind. What about, what about his reported isolation? Yes, he has the KGB people around him, but otherwise he seems to be very much in a protected, cocooned environment. That seems to be something new and seems to be something different. Do you chalk it up to COVID or is there potentially something else happening? I, I think COVID is probably a large part of it. I think the big cable, et cetera, is an exaggerated expression of uh, maybe COVID plus other stuff saying, you know, he doesn't want to get too close to these guys. He's, uh, maybe it's a way for him, in a sense, to show his power. So you haven't examined Putin. You haven't run medical tests on him. I don't believe you've even met him. How possible is it to draw good conclusions about either his mental or physical health without that sort of personal contact? I, I agree. I have not met Putin. You have to look at information you gather over time. One picture, one report means nothing. It's information over time, and over time it corroborates itself. So given your assessment of his health currently, would the U.S. be wrong to be anticipating his imminent death? Imminent death? Yes. I don't see that in the cards. So you did this sort of analysis of world leaders and terrorists uh, for years and years. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the process. You've mentioned looking at video uh, of Putin and looking at it over time. Where else do you collect information about these people that's relevant to creating this kind of, uh, of uh, picture? Yeah, the most important things are to find out, get as much information as you can about their family history, their upbringing, their background, uh, their culture, the cultural uh, world within which that person grew, especially in childhood. Secondly, you look at autobiographical writings. Uh, what other people write is nice, but that's just other people. If somebody writes an autobiography, it, that usually is, this is the way they really think. And many people, especially if the autobiography is written before they come to power, then after they come to power, you could bet they're going to follow through on any ideas that they wrote about in that early autobiography. That's going to be their goal during their term in power. Absolutely, number one is you have to eyeball that person, be in that person's presence physically. You can't just rely on a video because videos can be altered, they can be changed, they don't give you the whole picture. When a doctor does an exam, it doesn't start when you're sitting on a table with a gown on and he puts the stethoscope on your chest. It starts the minute you walk through the door. How are you walking? How are you talking? How do you look? Do you look, everything looks symmetrical? Is your, or do you smile? Do you sit? Uh, not smile? Is your face fixed, mask-like? 
Do the intelligence agencies try to gather, let's say, DNA samples or waste samples or blood samples uh, from certain individuals to try and get a clearer picture of their health? In the old days, before I was around doing this stuff, I, I heard stories about it. I don't know if that's just hype or whether they really did it or not. Yeah, I, I didn't actively go out and say, you know, give me a get me a Kleenex from when he blew his nose or something like that. I mean, it's it just, I'm not sure what that would tell us. Is, is there also a lot of disinformation and misinformation in this space? I used to spend 50% of my time disabusing our policymakers that of information that they heard about world, a world leader that was put out there to make the leader look bad or make him look good or either way. It just was absolutely not true. Did you find that within the intelligence community, sometimes the leadership got tunnel vision? They were convinced uh, about someone's health and it was difficult to shake them off that. Of course, of course. That, you know, politicians have their own needs as well. And um, if it's as, as one of the uh, senior people uh, at the White House told me, as a, as a young neophyte in the business, he said, look, he said, uh, just remember anything you say, the most important thing to a politician is, will this get them reelected? So whatever you say, if they view whatever you're saying as being important that they can use to help their reelection campaign, that's really going to get their attention. Uh, it's not right. But they said, look, candidly, that's the way the world, that's what the way things work. So it's not about the national interest. It's about personal ambition. Well, it's about national interest, but I think part of the national interest involves the personal desires and ambitions of a politician, whether it's American or some other country. They want to keep in office, remain in office. And this is the way they, you know, if they can get information that will help them stay in office, boy, they're all for it. Are there some instances that you can point to where we got it right or we really got it wrong? We did not know that the Shah of Iran had cancer. He was diagnosed in another country in 1973. There were rumors about it right from the get-go. 1975, they said, oh, he's got a bad problem. They, the, the, uh, the Iranian, they, they denied it. In 1978, when it was finally revealed when it, he, uh, that he had cancer and was on chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera, it was too late at that point to really do anything. Chemotherapy has a horrible effect on your thought processes. You get depressed. You don't uh, reason properly. And he was a setup for the Ayatollah to come in and take over the government. Now, I am biased. I think had we known about that, in 73, 74, 75, we might have been able to help him as we have done to leaders in the, with leaders in the past and prevent the world situation regarding that area of the country from even being what it is today. The, the one that I, I, I think is really very interesting is that uh, in 1995, I was on the floor of the UN during the UN meetings. And uh, Yeltsin was there. And uh, he's in the pit at the UN, and I'm in there too. And I walked up and kind of, he 
walked around. I kind of said, oh, hi, how are you? Put out my hand, I shook his hand, I looked at him. And, and at that point in time, I mean, his ankles were swollen. His uh, hands were puffy. Uh, it, was, it was very clear that he was in congestive heart failure. And uh, I let people know about that. Sent a, a video to him saying, "This is you've got a problem, and we'd like to help." And outlined what the options were. Uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, his doctor came to visit Doctor DeBakey and get an idea of what needed to be done and how to do it. They decided to do it, and DeBakey went to the so to Russia to Moscow to to oversee the surgery, the bypass cardiac bypass surgery that he had done. And uh, while he didn't stop his drinking, uh, he did have a, a very successful uh, coronary artery bypass, and he lived another three years, or uh, even longer than that, but he was able to stay in office another three years and facilitate friendly relations with the United States. Can you share some of the other names of people who you studied and analyzed over the years? Pretty much everybody. <laughs> I, I guess uh, Yasser Arafat, the one that I would talk about, yeah, I, that I can, I think, say, I was, I don't know if, if you should even report this. I, I was his doctor for like from 93 till I retired in 2003, behind the scenes. You um, were his personal doctor. Well, in, a, in, a, in an unofficial sense, I, went to Gaza. I was to see him. He used to talk with him. I talked with people that cared for him there. Whenever he came to the U.S., I was in the motorcade uh, with him, staying in the hotel with him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, very interesting guy. I got to know a lot about him uh, and uh, uh, very charismatic. Kind of strange that you would think he would be charismatic, but he really was. And uh, even though he was in some ways not particularly life likable, he, he was a very uh, endearing guy. I mean, you could you could really relate to him. Uh, unfortunately, I think the problem is Rabin got assassinated. They had a very close relationship. They trusted each other. And if there's one thing that's important, it's trust. You can't overcome that. The first obligation of any leader is to develop trust with whoever you want to deal with. If you don't have trust and you're suspicious, you'll get nowhere. And they trusted each other. When he was assassinated, that was the end of the Oslo Agreement, in my opinion. It just didn't work. Clinton and, and Barack couldn't, no matter, they offered such a gener generous settlements, but he, Arafat didn't trust them. So when you were dealing with Arafat, were you a government employee when you did that? Of course. How often is it that the U.S. steps in and provides medical advice or assistance to foreign leaders? As often as we can. As often as we can. To our friends or people we see are useful, I presume, not to our enemies. I never discriminated whether they were friends or enemies. If there was a medical issue that we saw, I felt it was the right thing to do. Ethically, if I know somebody's got a bad problem, but he's a bad guy, you know, I'm not being a, ethically, which ethics are important to me. I, I 
never would refuse to offer an observation and say, look, we've noticed this in you. You've got a problem. We're happy to help you if you wish. But if not, you should look into it. That's fascinating because I would think strategically it might be to the advantage of the U.S. to let them be sick. Yeah, but that's not the right thing to do. Ethically, it would be. Ethically, it's wrong. That's not what the United, in my mind, that's not the way, that's not what the United States is all about. We're the good guys. I don't think that our business is being, we shouldn't be acting like some of the actors on stage right now uh, who do that. I mean, look how the Russians are behaving in Ukraine. I mean, in the in military, it's what they're doing. It's like, that's, that's, they're just maniacs. They're, they're not, they're not behaving in a normal well put together people don't do those sorts of things. And so we don't have to emulate that behavior. We should, we should set an example. But should we, for instance, be extending an offer of medical help to someone like Putin? Yeah, why not? Because he's doing what he's doing in Ukraine. Well, if he had a problem and we had something we could do to fix it, it would be in his best interest to let us help him. And, uh, hey, you want to do this? Great. You know, hey, by the way, why don't you get out of Ukraine? By the way. And, uh, so it gives the U.S. potentially some leverage to get what they want. Well, it's not only leverage, it's a way to establish trust. And if he can trust us that you know, we're, we're, we, really in, in our, we really want to help him, then maybe some sense of humanity will rear its head in, in him and uh, say, you know, maybe these Americans aren't so bad after all. I mean, he's lived his whole life hearing that the United States are the bad guys and grew up in communist Russia. Uh, and, you know, and hear all these bad things about the United States. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like other countries of the world that don't like us. They, it's the, the leaders are leaders who grew up with the idea that Americans are bad. And one of our jobs is to try to do what we can do to show them that this is just not the way we are. You know, it doesn't make any difference whether the issue is political or economic or scientific or military, people are involved. People are making the decisions. The fact that it's military or political or economic, there's still a person there that's saying, yes, let's do that. No, let's not do that, etc. And if you don't understand the people, the human factor of what's going on, you're going to miss the boat. And if you look at intelligence failures over the years, for example, the main reason, and I've done this, is looking at it, is because the people involved didn't get the human factor. They didn't understand the people they were dealing with. And so they missed the boat entirely, and boom, we have intelligence failures on our hands from Pearl Harbor on down. And so that's, to me, the biggest challenge for the United States is to recognize the human factor, that people are important. And before we can do anything, we really need to understand the people we're dealing with, their childhood, especially in upbringing and family and culture. And, and it's kind of what makes them tick and how do they make their decisions? And then you have a good chance of building trust and maybe you can get somewhere. That was Les Pyenson, former head of the CIA's medical and psychological group. Jeff? 
Well, that was fascinating. Of course, most fascinating part to me was his interaction with Yasser Arafat. It fits in because during that period, the CIA had opened a back channel with the PLO through an agent in the PLO leadership. And uh, the CIA was interested in, of course, continuing and developing any contacts it could have with the PLO to understand what was going on and maybe even uh, modify its behavior. So sending the good doctor there to look after Arafat was a very clever move. Pretty amazing. I remember so clearly Arafat's first visit to the White House and feeling like the tectonic plates of American diplomacy were shifting before my very eyes. So when he talked about providing medical care to this guy, I too was absolutely stunned, amazed, and fascinated. Well, I think for espionage veterans, it wasn't all that surprising. That's what we call an approach to open a channel, develop trust, um, and penetrate the PLO. So at the highest levels in that case. So not all that surprising. It's an opportunity for the CIA to get close to uh, Arafat. I would actually like to hear him talk about Richard Nixon and Donald Trump, a couple of people you talk about in the next segment. Stay with us. A reminder, though, that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and got a lot of great original content. Also subscribe to our podcast, Leave us a review and send us a comment. I'm on Twitter at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. Jefferson Morley has been writing on national security issues, particularly those involving the CIA, for decades. He's out now with a new book on a lesser known aspect of the Watergate affair, the tense relationship during that time between President Nixon and CIA director Richard Helms, who's been described as the man who kept the secrets. Morley's book is called Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Jeff Morley, welcome to Spy Talk. Of course, I want to talk about your new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. But first, I want to ask you about what fascinates you so much about the CIA you spent a good part of your career roaming the catacombs of the underworld of American politics. You wrote a book about the CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton. You wrote another book about a CIA station chief in Mexico in the 1960s, Winston Scott, which is subtitled The Hidden History of the CIA. You've written a lot about the Kennedy assassination. Yet I don't think anyone would classify you as a conspiracy freak. Your journalism at the Washington Post, before that, the New Republic and the Nation magazine, has a solid track record. But what is it that continues to fascinate you about this political underworld? I think that it was a formative experience of coming into Washington journalism in the 1980s when the civil wars in Central America were this white-hot political issue. And as that story unfolded and then led into the Iran-Contra scandal, I really learned firsthand how big the role of the CIA was in the power scheme of Washington and also how hidden it was. You know, if you were reporting on the CIA in those days and I was writing for the, for the nation and the New Republic, I mean, you know, it, it, it was, you, you knew that they were very important and you knew that there was very little ways to understand what was really going on. And so, as I delved into that story, especially in the Iran-Contra 
scandal, I began to understand this permanent importance, the hidden hand of the CIA in American politics. And that's mm-hmm. what fascinated me and, 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 and led me to write these to write these books about the CIA and about these leading figures in the agency, because it, I, I felt it was like so important in what actually happened and yet so undercovered. And yeah. so, so that was, that's what, I think that's the common denominator of, of all the work that you alluded to. Yeah. And I mean, I, 20 years before you came into journalism um, and took note of Iran-Contra and the wars in, in Central America in which the CIA had a central role the CIA was never written about. The first real book about the CIA, The Invisible Government, uh, shocked people when it came out. But anyway, let's circle back to 1968, um, where the meat of your book begins when Richard Nixon is elected president, takes office the following January. Richard Helms had been running secret operations for the CIA for years by that time, Almost immediately, their fates would become entwined in things that would eventually spell their mutual doom. So set the scene of the two scorpions and their <laughs> well, entanglement. Right. So the two wicked Richards, Richard Nixon, an anxious striver from a poor background in the West Coast, the 35th president, um, hard right conservative, and Richard Helms, silky smooth scion of the main line in Philadelphia, career intelligence collector low-key, um, suave, all kinds of friends in Washington. And really, these two men are really polar opposites. Um, Nixon decides to keep Helms on as CIA director at the recommendation of President Johnson, who really liked Helms and, and had a lot of confidence in his judgment. Um, Nixon felt that he didn't want to politicize the CIA, and so he, took, he kept Helms on. And the two men actually forged an effective working relationship. Um, Nixon was perennially suspicious of the CIA and of these, you know, East Coast cosmopolitan types like Helms. But Helms was very savvy and he tended to Nixon's wounded pride and he he flattered him relentlessly. And it worked. You know, Nixon, Nixon was an insecure man. And if somebody praised him, as Helms made a point of doing regularly in little notes, um, you know, that, that worked. And, and they shared they shared hardline anti-communist politics. You know, by 1970, Nixon's own cabinet was in rebellion about continuing the Vietnam War. You know, there were several cabinet, you know, uh, Secretary of State uh, didn't want to expand the war and Nixon and Kissinger did. You know, Helms bucked up Nixon at that moment and supported him wholeheartedly at a mm-hmm. time when other people around him weren't. So even though he wasn't optimistic about the outcome of the war. No, absolutely. Helms but as he said, said again and again, and, and it comes out in your book, Helms says, you know, I have one boss at a time. I have one client at a time, and that's president. So he was in the saddle with Nixon, and that would take us to the beginnings of their collaboration in domestic spying, uh, tracking of dissidents, spying on the anti-war movement, which had begun under President Johnson. Yeah. And, you know, this is where the policy of domestic surveillance, Helms and Nixon can't believe that the anti-war movement is solely indigenous among the American people. They're looking for some foreign intelligence agency, some communist influence, some communist money. And so 
they want to expand the government's powers to spy on Americans. Helms wholeheartedly supports Nixon in this, even much more than J. Edgar Hoover, who we consider to be really the arch reactionary. Hoover was much more reticent about these schemes than Helms. And as they are advancing this policy at the same time, Nixon is going crazy about the anti-war movement and especially about the leak of the Pentagon Papers. And he wants a dirty trickster. He wants somebody to take on these Democrats and these liberals. And Helms recommends to, to, to Bob Haldeman, he recommends his friend Howard Hunt. And he says he's ruthless, he's quiet, he's careful, he's on our side. And this is a year before the break-in. And it's at a time when Helms would later say he had no dealings at all with, with, with Hunt. In fact, Helms had recommended Hunt to the White House. And Hunt was exactly the kind of guy that Nixon wanted. He was a hardline slasher, anti-communist, go for, you know attack the kennedys you know embittered attack politics and so helms kind of provides howard hunt as a good fit you know for for nixon they, they have similar politics and similar styles let me let me circle back a little bit sure one of the holds that nixon had on richard helms was that nixon came to learn of the CIA's involvement with the criminal underworld, with gangsters. Yes. A lot of the Watergate origins stems with um, nefarious various CIA operations against Castro. I mean, it brings the Watergate burglars together. It brings together this, again, the Scorpions dance, as you described <laughs> it, between Nixon and Helms, because Nixon knows a lot about dirty activities by CIA in regards to Cuba. And Helms understands that Nixon knows this about him. Right. Remember that the plots against Castro originated during the Eisenhower administration. The original Eisenhower, the original CIA approach to the mafia bosses, can you help us kill Castro, happens in September 1960. At that time, Nixon, as vice president, is point man on the Eisenhower administration's Cuba policy. And Nixon is much tougher on Cuba than Eisenhower. Eisenhower is not really interested in Cuba. And so Nixon, too, knows about what was really going on as the as CIA was first trying to assassinate. So they know a lot about each other. And that's that's part of the Scorpions dances. And this was something that, you know, now it's a matter of history and everybody knows that it happened. But at the time, this was something that they needed to keep very well hidden. Mm -hmm. um, and but there were it, the story was starting to leak out by the 1970s. And so they had to deal with it. So while publicly, you know, they would say nothing about it and they would dismiss any talk about the Kennedy assassination. Privately, they were very worried. They, they couldn't let this story get out. So mm -hmm. that was what they were maneuvering around. And Nixon became eager because he saw Bobby Kennedy as a future rival and Nixon saw the Kennedys, uh, Ted Kennedy, as a rival. Uh, Nixon had a driving interest in collecting dirt on the Kennedys, in particular in regard to two assassination plans against Castro and the other against South Vietnam President Ngo Dinh Diem. So he was holding that over, uh, you know, he's gathering ammunition to use against the Kennedys, but that was a danger zone for Richard Helms. Yeah, because this was a story that um, 
you know, uh, was was very sensitive. And understand too that Helms Helms did not like the way Helms was not in charge of the CIA when the assassination plots were advanced. And the way that they approached the mafia figures, it was really very insecure for an, that kind of operation. And Helms was a real stickler for procedures. And he talked at other times about, you know, the way that other CIA officers set that thing up. Helms thought it was completely amateur. So not only did he know about it, but he also looked down on it. You know, it, it, that was, so he wanted to protect himself from it in, in, in many ways. And, and Nixon knew that the agency was vulnerable on this question of what was going on with the Castro plots. What, was that connected to JFK's assassination? He knew that was a weak spot for the, for, the, for, the, for, this, for the agency. So he thought that would give him leverage over Helms. Helms would do his bidding if he raised that issue. You know, if he intimated that there was something there, then you know, Helms would have to go along. Now, Helms was a very canny character, and he was not going to be blackmailed, you know, not easily. And so that was, you know, after the after the Watergate break-in, Nixon attempts to use this, and he says, you know, he tells Haldeman, go to Helms and tell him if he doesn't help us, that's going to blow open the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And that was a kind of coded reference to the Castro assassination plots and the possible connection to Kennedy's assassination. And Helms was furious, you know, and he says, this doesn't have a damn thing to do with the Bay of Pigs. He screams at him, shouts at Haldeman. So that's how sensitive it was. Nixon knew that he was pressing a very sensitive point with Helms, and Helms was very angry about it, precisely because it was so threatening. Mm -hmm. You would think that given that Helms was so careful about these wild plots with the mafia, for example, to kill Castro, that he would have gotten in the way of the White House's use of E. Howard Hunt and other CIA connected individuals to conduct, you know, this off the books spying stuff, the break in and so on. And yet he was driven to always to be the intelligence collector. Is that why he sort of let this? He didn't have any particular knowledge, right, of the Watergate break in. But, no. he had but his people he knew, Howard Hunt, he was very close to. Right. He knew people were involved. He sensed there was something wrong going on. You think he would have gotten in the in front of that and just said, "No, uh -oh. we, you know, Howard, you can't be involved in anything like that. Stay away from the White House." No, and yet he, he just couldn't resist. Well, you know, the thing about Helms was, you go with the president or you get out of the executive branch. That's almost an exact quote from Helms. Like you said, he served his president. The president wanted a dirty trickster. Well. Helms recommends Hunt. He didn't know that it was going to blow up in his face. Helms, you know, Hunt was a, an action-oriented guy. He served Nixon's needs. So Helms wanted to serve his president, and that's, you know, and, and that's how he did it. The extent of the CIA's involvement with the Watergate burglars went unreported for a long, long time, right? Yeah, I think, I think one of the most significant revelations, not, it's not new, other Watergate writers have, have, have brought this up, um, but I think that I show very clearly, there's, there's compelling evidence that the motivation for the, bur for the Watergate burglar specifically was blackmail, to get blackmail material on Democratic Party politicians. Um, and also that the information that was collected by the burglars and Watergate was not their only operation, we now know. Um, that information flowed back to the CIA. And let me be specific about that. 
other two other CIA officers said that Helm that Hunt sent Helms packages of material in 1970, 70, 71, 72 um, via the NS, the CIA office in the NSC. Two, two CIA officers in good standing said that. Um, James McCord retained copies of the, you know, the wiretaps that they had on, on their targets and was sharing those with, with, with a, a longtime friend and colleague named Lee Pennington, who was a CIA informant and who maintained a vast archive on suspected subversives, homosexuals, that sort of thing. Right after the burglary, I tell the story in the book of how McCord's wife and this man, Lee Pennington, they go to McCord's house and they start burning papers to, to make sure that, that, that McCord cannot be linked to the CIA, that McCord's activities with the burglars cannot be linked back to the CIA. And they destroy a bunch of evidence, which was basically totally unknown to Watergate investigators for a couple of years. And by the time people found out about it, it didn't make any difference in the prosecution of the burglary or the understanding of the case. But we, but we, can, we now know that this information from the burglars was flowing back to the CIA, which if you think about it, makes sense, right? Yeah. Here's more information, let's put it in our files, no harm to us. Plus, we don't have to pay McCord and Hunt's salaries anymore, they're working for other people, but we still get the benefit of their work. So for Helms, the intelligence collector, the burglars were a nice sort of off the shelf solution, off budget solution. He, he gets information that he couldn't get any other way, mm -hmm. um, but his hand, he's not directly tied to it. Yeah, and again, McCord did not have the same relationship with Helms that uh, E. Howard Hunt had, but he had been a senior security official at CIA. Absolutely. So there was another solid tie to CIA. McCord, in his office of the, of the security firm that he opened after his retirement, McCord had a photograph of Helms autographed, which said, with deep appreciation, underscore, Dick Helms. So yeah, Helms knew McCord and liked him. When Nixon came to CIA headquarters in 1969, in the early days of his administration, McCord was in charge of the security of the presidential visit. And, you know, Helms writes a nice note, for the record, to be sure, but says, you know, good job on the presidential security, Mr. McCord. So Dick Helms knew full well who Jim McCord was. Now, like you say, Watergate has been raked over again and again and again through the now 50 years since the break-in. Mm -hmm. Did you come across, I mean, the value of your book again by first extrapolating details on the close relationship of Helms and the CIA as an institution to the Watergate burgers, that's, that's revelatory. Uh, but... Uh, was there anything else that you came across in your research that surprised you about Watergate or the or the personalities involved in in Watergate? Um, I was surprised. I, I I knew that Hunt and Helms had been friends, and Helms acknowledged that. But the the depth and the length and the closeness of their relationship, I don't think, has ever been really explored. I mean, when when. In 1963, Hunt's wife, Dorothy, was fluent in Spanish, and she, she served as a, a, a secretary and translator for the Spanish ambassador in the United States. And she started stealing material off of his desk and feeding it back to the CIA about what, what, what was Spain's position with Kennedy. They were trying to get Kennedy to visit 
you know, uh, on his European tour and all of that. And people in the people in the CIA said, look, we really can't do this. This, this is, is spy. domestic spying. <laughs> We're not supposed the, to be doing that. Right. And, and so the question gets kicked up to Helms and Helms says, we're going to make an exception in this case. This is OK. Yeah. I mean, so he steps in and he protects his buddy's wife and he likes that, you know, he's getting this dirt, you know, and he doesn't really care that he's flouting the CIA's charter. That's mm -hmm. how close he was to mm -hmm. Hunt, you know, seven years or 10 years before Watergate. So well, that was one thing that was one thing that, um, you know, that, that that definitely surprised me. Another yeah. thing was. Hunt was involved in, I hadn't realized this, Hunt was involved in plots to assassinate Castro. They were going to kill Castro at a, he was going to appear at the, 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 the State Housing Institute in early 1963. And they had a whole plot to get a gun in there and they were going to kill him. In there. Cuba. And, and yeah, in Cuba. And the Cuban security broke it up and a lot of Helms's people went, I mean, Hunt's people went to jail. But Hunt, Sturgis, and Bernard Barker, one of the other burglars, all three were involved in assassination plots against Castro. So, and then, you know, later Gordon Liddy tells the story in his biography, you know, when, when Hunt and Liddy went to interview people to join the burglary team, Liddy said that Hunt had boasted that of the men they interviewed, they had killed 22 people, mm -hmm. including hanging two from a beam in a garage. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was, these guys weren't just burglars, they were killers, you know, and I think, I hadn't quite realized that. I mean, once once you know that story, you realize it makes perfect sense. This is the underworld. You know, these aren't just, you know, kind of scruffy guys. These are true killers. And so there, there was a seriousness of, of what they were up to that I didn't think I had appreciated until I really got into this book. There was another, uh, there's, the book is sprinkled with little nuggets that's, uh, that I underlined. I almost <laughs> emptied all the ink out of my pen underlining stuff in the book. And uh, one is sort of inconsequential, but you write how, how Helms got a hold of the advanced uh, Oliver Stone script for right. Nixon, for his uh, biopic on Nixon, and reached out to Stone and said, take the scene out. Uh, you know, right. Uh, I mean, even, even in retirement, you know, years into retirement in the 90s, Helms is still a great spy. Like, how did he get the screenplay? You know, like, he had the ability to do that. Yes. And, and, and he threatens, he threatens Stone with litigation, because there's a, there's a great scene in the director's cut between Helms and Nixon. Helms is played by Sam Waterston and Nixon, of course, is played by Anthony Hopkins. And, you know, it's it's a it's a very ominous scene. It depicts Helms very ominously. And so that's what he threatened to sue about. Stone took it out of the theatrical release for reasons of length, he told me. Um, but he put it into the director's cut and, 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 and Helms never sued. So that was how that thing wound out. But, yeah, Helms was a good spy, even in his old age. So, you know, you, you can think about Donald Trump having, a, it's hard to develop a lot of sympathy for Donald Trump, right. but on the issue of the deep state in Washington, you have to, have, to, have to think that he had a point there. Well, you know, one thing that you realize, that I realized from doing this story is, you know, the hidden hand of the CIA, you have these giant events going on like Watergate, and, you know, you just don't see the hand of the CIA until many years until many years later. And so you think about our situation today, you know, what will we know 
what will we come to know, you know, 50 years in, uh, from now about the hidden hand of, of the CIA and, you know, in the last four years? And we just don't know. That's part of the paradox of a clandestine service in a democracy. It's, it's, it's almost a contradiction in terms. So jumping from deep states back to Watergate era 50 years ago this, mm -hmm. this month, why do we why do why do we care? What what why should we care about what happened in Watergate today? It's an ancient history for a lot of people. Yeah, um, it, it did happen a long time ago, and our you know our political realities are very different. The political parties are different. The political mood of the country is very different. But there is a similarity, and 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 I, and I think it's important to at this moment in American history to. To, to go back to another moment in American history when it seemed like the very constitutional foundations of the country were in doubt. And what was the legitimacy of the constitutional order and how was this republic governed? And that feeling that we have now, you know, that this seems to be up for grabs, that was a feeling that was also prevalent in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and especially as the Watergate scandal culminates, you know, what what what's going on? Who's in charge? What are the rules? And this struggle between you know a president determined to impose his will, and you know government agencies that have other agendas. And so we are also now in the midst of a constitutional crisis, probably more serious than during during the Watergate time. But there is that similarity of what are the basic what is the basic constitutional order of the United States? How's it going to be? determined and, and followed. Isn't it interesting that we're marking the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in in the same month that Congress is about to begin its hearings, its investigative hearings on the January 6th riot, both yeah, and, and, revolving and, 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 on, on important issues of, con of control of the government. Yeah, and, and, and the January 6th committee is, you know, clearly aiming to tell a story like the Watergate committee 50 years ago. The January 6th committee is clearly aiming to reveal a story, document a story that the White House is determined to hide. And so, you know, it's a, uh, in, in the Watergate era, you had this resurgence of Congress. Congress reasserted itself against the executive branch. You know, Nixon was going to be impeached. The um, uh, the, the Congress stepped in and imposed new controls on the CIA. So you had this assertive Congress. And now Congress is trying to do the same thing, take on this, this president who is out of control, certainly not obeying the constitutional procedures uh, as they have been understood for the last 250 years, and you know, hold it accountable. And in the Watergate era, Congress was able to do that. Nixon was forced to resign. You know, now we have a much different political array. And so, you know, the ability of Congress to rein in a lawless president is probably less now than it was then, you know, because uh, uh, the Trump has a unified party behind him, whereas Nixon's party, because of his transgressions, had mostly abandoned him by the end. Of course, the but bottom line. Similarity. Yeah. And the bottom line is we know how Watergate turned out with the resignation of the president, several Gee, almost two dozen of his aides and other officials going to jail. Yeah. Um, uh, we don't know how January 6th is going to turn out. No. And 
a lot of us aren't really optimistic that it's going to turn out as well. Right. And I don't think, you know, I, 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 I don't think the Watergate comparison is encouraging because if you study the particulars of it, um, the constitutional forces were a lot stronger in 1972-74 than they are now. The institutional forces were stronger. Um, now Congress is weaker. Congress is more divided. Um, public opinion is more radicalized. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the, the Watergate example, um, you know, uh, teaches us um, the negative lesson. You know, uh, uh, it, does, it doesn't teach us a positive lesson. If we look at this, at, at, at this period in history and compare it as a crisis of American democracy, you know, the, the comparison uh, uh, makes our time look more difficult. That's Jefferson Morley, author of Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Washington area listeners, by the way, might be interested in knowing that I'll be introducing Jeff in his book at Politics and Prose Bookstore in D.C. on Monday, June 13th. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein have been talking a lot and writing a lot about the Watergate anniversary. And they wrote in the Washington Post last weekend, we believed with great conviction that never again would America have a president who would trample the national interest and undermine democracy through the audacious pursuit of personal and political self-interest. Then they write, along came Trump. They point out, however, that Nixon did it in secret using the CIA and Trump, in their view, does it very much in public. Yeah, and the other big difference is that Nixon and his team worked surreptitiously to undermine the Democratic candidate. In fact, they were so successful that uh, they edged out uh, the leading Democratic moderate candidate in favor of the lesser known, lesser popular uh, George McGovern, who was just smashed in the election, just thoroughly whipped. So the difference between that and the Trump era is that we now know it's very public now, and we'll learn more with the hearings that are opening, that what Trump and his people did was try to derail the election results. That's a big difference, but both odious attacks on American constitutional government. Amazing to me that it was 50 years ago. I remember going to the Watergate hearings when I was a congressional intern as a college kid. Long time ago, but I remember it so vividly, as I'm sure you do as well. I remember people lining up outside the Post building when the printing presses were in the basement. People were waiting for the first edition of the paper at 10, 1030 at night. And you'd grab one and then repair to the Post pub across the street to drink beer and, and chew on the latest uh, scoop by Woodward and Bernstein. It was quite a time. And a time when people really did fear for the future of democracy. We have to leave it there. Thanks a lot for joining us this week. I'm Jean Mazur. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us, and we'll see you here next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.